0: The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're in the home of James Schneider. He's an all-around music guy, a pianist, a music teacher, not just a pianist, plays guitar, multi-instrumentalist, you could say. Composer, uh, cigar aficionado. That's how we met. That is how we met at J. Cigars, J. Cigars and Cigars. Coffee. Yeah. yeah. So James, thank you very much for having us in your home. Sure, you're welcome. So you're from New York originally,
1: right? Yeah, I was born there. Well, tomorrow it'll be 65 years ago, 1953, and uh, I was a little kid. I grew up in Queens and uh, Jackson Heights. A section of Queens, and then, uh, my dad was a nuclear engineer, so we moved around. We lived in New Jersey for a big stretch of time, but also spent some time in the Baltimore area and Chicago area as well. And, uh, then when my family settled in the Atlanta area, my dad, uh, took a job as a teacher at, uh, Georgia Tech. And he taught there for 17 years, and then, uh, later he taught at MIT. But I came to visit him in 78, and found a job, and uh, stayed here pretty much since 1978. I've lived in Atlanta with a few forays to other exotic places. So.
0: Tell us a little bit about your ancestry.
1: My ancestry? Well... Uh, My dad is a very interesting guy, he's from what used to be Romania, and his father uh, was a medical doctor, and he was originally from Vienna, Austria, and uh, their Jewish ancestry and uh, my grandfather, in fact, was a medical officer during World War I for the Aust- Austrians. And, uh, and then he moved to what at that time was called Romania. Uh, and, and, you know, in three generations, it's changed from being the Austro-Hungarian Empire, hmm. Romania, and uh, after World War I, and then after World War II, that section of Romania is now considered part of the Ukraine. Hmm. So um, you know it's hard to put a, a, a fine fingerprint on exactly you know where they where they're from. But he is originally from a town called Chernovitz, uh which in, is now called Chernihiv in the Ukraine, and uh, he was very. Talented musician. He was studied piano when he was a kid, and uh, then he took up the accordion. And he was like, you know, the Jimi Hendrix of the accordion of that part of <laughs> Romania. So he was, you know, showing off all the time and and won all these uh, contests, you know, for accordion players. The Accordion was as hot as the electric guitar, I guess is. Became you know later on it was, hmm. it was I guess it was louder than everything else so uh, it was a popular instrument to have at parties and so on and and uh, he a very interesting thing happened to that particular part of the world because it was during World War II it was overrun by the Germans and the, the Russians and back and forth and that particular part of of uh, Romania went back and forth under you know different control. And when he was pretty young, I think he was 16, 17 years old at that time, the Russians had taken over that part of Romania. And he was basically given a choice. Either you take this gun and go to the front line, in which case your chance of survival is pretty, you know, zilch. Or option number two, take this accordion, put together a band, and uh, he did. He put together a uh, ensemble, like a, uh, at times six, seven, eight piece uh, group that became the Russian Officers Band. Mm. And he traveled on the trains all the way through you know, different parts of where the Russians had occupied uh, different parts of Europe and entertained the Russian officers. And that's how he survived World War II. Because it wasn't, you know, especially good to be Jewish in that part of Romania. You know? yeah. uh, many, many, many people from that part of the world did not survive. You know, for one re- reason or another. You know, concentration camps, starvation, being inscripted by one army or another. So he hmm. survived basically because of music, which is one important reason why he you always know, supported my being involved with. Hmm. Uh, musical events. And at the same time, my mom grew up right across the the Dniasta River into what was Poland, which is now also part of the Ukraine. So, I don't know if you could say I'm Ukrainian, because neither of them were Ukrainian at that time. And my mom had a fascinating uh, time. Most of her family was wiped out in World War II. And she was, in fact, in a concentration camp uh, with her mother and brother who did not survive, and she escaped. And she wrote a book about it, hmm. called Someone Must Survive to Tell the Story, which has uh, recently been printed in English, French, Hebrew, and now someone's uh, publishing it in Chinese Mandarin as well. So It's called Someone Must Survive to Tell the Story. And... My mom is ninety years old now. And she still goes out and lectures at colleges and high schools, and uh, uh, is, does a lot with the Bremen Jewish Museum. Hmm. Uh, and people are very curious because at, at this point in time, there aren't that many people who survived that you know that period of time. And uh, she's been very effective at you know being involved and staying active. And my dad's ninety-two, and the two of them still managed to, to get together and you know, kick my butt at Scrabble, so they're <laughs> <laughs> mentally have, haven't lost anything. They're, they're very active. Um, but that's where, that's the part of the world that they're from. And then after uh, World War II, the remnants of my mother's and father's family moved to different places. Some of them moved to Australia, some of them, a uh, large contingent, moved to Brazil. And um, they live in São Paulo and Brasília, uh, and then a, a number of them moved to Israel. And of course, my dad moved to New York, and, uh, and then we went to you know wound up uh, in I wound up in Atlanta. So, hmm. and I, I came here in 1978. So, so celebrating now 40 years. Right. it would be about 40 years I've been in mm-hmm. Atlanta, yeah. So I mean, I'm going to be 65 tomorrow, so that's more than… Yeah, most of your life. Yeah, most of my <laughs> life, so, but I, I don't know if I'm solid, you no. Know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah.
0: So what was the first instrument that you ever played?
1: Well, the first instrument that I remember, have any memories of playing, uh, was a little electric chord organ, you know, which is essentially you know, it has buttons like an accordion and a keyboard and you plug it in the wall, it's got a little fan, you know, that blows air through it, and it's a a, you know, a chord organ. And my dad would teach me songs, you know, on that when I was a little kid, I three, four years old, I don't know. And first formal lessons I took on the piano was when I was eight years old. And I was very, very fortunate, just extremely lucky. I uh, at that time, my, my folks lived near uh, Baltimore, Maryland, in a suburb uh, called Timonium, Maryland. Mm. And where we lived was very close to the Peabody Conservatory of Music. So I was able to go to the Peabody Conservatory as a, a little kid, eight years old, to study with a uh, piano instructor. Um, Mrs. Chang was her name. She was from China. And she was a fantastic teacher. She was, uh, you know, it, I didn't know it at the time, but she was giving me a, sort of an accelerated uh, introduction to uh, European classical music. So um, I distinctly remember one of my first recitals. I did, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Greek Piano Concerto. You know that one?
0: No. I don't a little bit like this. One, of the, that
1: one, you know. Yeah. And uh, I nailed it. You know, I didn't mess up. And my dad was so happy. You know, he said, "Wow, that's fantastic. You know, you did a great job." Let's go to get some ice cream. And I said, "No, nah, I don't want any." And he said, "Well, let's go to the toy store." And I said, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> you know, you've nailed the Greek piano concerto. What can you know? And I think that was the only moment I could ever get him weak enough to consider. Uh, my getting a dog? Because he did not, absolutely, did not want to consider a pet. You know, in the house for obvious reasons. You know, kinda, you know So we went to the pet store, and I got this dog. Uh, Teddy, the dog, and I kept him for, like, he was around for around 17 years. It was wow. Amazing. He was a kind of golden retriever, collie mix. And, of course, the dog's, you know, crazy. They When they're puppies, they mess up everything, and my dog did it. <laughs> <laughs> but I never would have had a chance without Edward Greek and the, the Greek piano concerto. So there was a lot of positive reinforcement in music, and then, uh, see, after we lived in the Baltimore area for about four years, we moved back to the New York City area, New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey, and I'll never forget my dad, my mom did not want to drive me anywhere for piano and she was through with that driving. Uh, she said, there's a piano teacher next door, and you can go next door, and and this nice lady will teach you how to play the piano. So I walk in, you know, I'm 12 years old. She pulls out the Teaching Little Fingers How to Play book, and I was so insulted to the core. You know? <laughs> here, here I'm playing, you know, Chopin and Bach and Franz Liszt and Beethoven, and she pulls out Teaching Little Fingers How to Play. So uh, and I remember her name was Mrs. Gray. And I was so pissed off. I went home. I slammed shut that piano. I didn't want to have nothing to do with piano and piano lessons. You know, I just felt like my my whole musical talent was being insulted. You know, and I, and I was very intolerant of Mrs. Gray and you know going to walking next door and taking piano lessons. With her. I guess her her husband worked with my dad, so it was a bunch of for my wife, and it was you know I just refused to have anything to do with it. So, the flip side of my musical uh, story, you know, when I was a young kid, was that after you know slamming shut the lid, you know, of my family, we had a Mason and Hamlin uh, upright piano, real nice piano. Uh, my family started to worry about me because I was the kind of kid like you had to send me outside to go play, you know, because I was practicing the piano all the time, you know, like Schroeder and uh, Charlie Brown, you know, go out and play, you can't practice the piano all day, you know, so I just went, you know, cold, dark, end of piano, you know, Mrs. Gray killed it. And um, so my relatives from Brazil... Said, let's bring him a guitar, and they brought me a Giannini guitar. That's made from some uh, in some In fact, I still have a Giannini guitar now, not the same one, but uh, a different one. And uh, my uncle up in upstate New York brought me a archtop jazz guitar, and he said maybe we can get him interested in playing guitar, so that we had a guy come to the house and start teaching me some folk guitar styles, you know, uh, music at that time, this is, you know, in the mid-60s, Gordon Lightfoot, Ian and Sylvia, Bob Dylan, you know, that kind of folk guitar. And I was really interested in, I'd heard some jazz guitar players like Wes Montgomery. And I was curious about, you know, that style of guitar. And when I was about 14 or 15, I found this teacher had to, you know, he didn't live in Morristown, New Jersey. He lived in Livingston, New Jersey. But I convinced my mom that I, if I take the number 41 bus uh, from Morristown, uh, that I could, you know, bring a guitar and take a take guitar lesson. By that time, I had a Sears and Roebuck with these harmony guitars. Three pickups! And, you know, I, I thought that was... That was the thing. And so I went, and the teacher was really an amazing guy. He was the guitar player for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh, wow. And his name was uh, Tony Matola.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, a lot of people know Tommy Matola, which was his, uh, I think, either his cousin or his brother, younger brother, who married Mariah Carey. This is not Tommy Matola. This is Tony Matola. Yeah. Who uh, was a brilliant guitar player. And, and you know that time Tonight Show band was with Doc Severinsen, yeah. and Clark Terry was in that band, and Art Farmer. A lot of great musicians were in the Tonight Show band. Ed Shaughnessy was a drummer, um, and they always had great people sitting in, Buddy Rich, and you know different people. So um, Tony Matola, I was his first lesson on Thursdays. You know, show up there on the he'd still have his tuxedo on from, you know, filming The Tonight Show. They filmed The Tonight Show in the afternoon. And, you know, he'd get there and he'd he'd be putting on his blue jeans and say, I'm not going to teach you any of that hip jazz stuff until you play whatever the top ten hits of the day are. So whatever, you know, it could be Creedence Clearwater or The Beatles or Tommy James and the Shonda, whatever, you know, was the top ten hits of the day. I had to sit there, you know, with my guitar in front of the music stand and play the chord changes to the top, whatever was the top, Billboard's top 10 hits of the day, which I did, you know, and I knew these songs, you know, uh, Rolling on the River, all the, you know, Proud, Proud Mary, whatever was, you know, in the top 10 list. And then he'd agree to show me some jazz, you know, when he's, uh, you know, he'd pull out his guitar and show me, you know, All the different derivations of chords, you know, how you could, you know, create major sevens, ninths, elevenths, thirteenths, you know, how different chord changes work together. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, one day he hands me his upright, not upright, his uh, Fender Jazz bass. And uh, I actually got the opportunity to do a few gigs. Tony Mattel playing bass, and I would never played bass in a day in my life. You
0: know? uh-huh.
1: He said, just play the one and the five, and you already know these songs because we've been reading them. You know, these were casual gigs like weddings and bar and stuff like that. So I was, you know, playing with some pretty good people. And then I found out that as a guitar player and as a bass player, you could work off a lot, you know, and the, the, the pop music of that time... That was really big was Motown and soul music, and so I put together a few different little bands you know, in my high school, and then uh, you know after struggling around playing these little little clubs in New Jersey with uh, you know seven eight nine ten piece bands with horns and you know choreography and all this kind of stuff doing soul music. Um, Uh, an amazing revelation took place where I figured out that with three people, with a drummer, a bass player, and a guitar player, you could do this pop music that was coming out like Jimi Hendrix and and, Crane. You know, that trio. uh, It wasn't really heavy metal, but it was hard rock music. So uh, me and a very fine drummer, uh, Glenn Weisgerber, Joe Breitenbach started a trio, Aurora Borealis, and we played all around New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Made a lot more money than playing with a nine, ten piece band. <laughs> so, but some of the guys that, that I played with in, in the soul music era went on to big careers in music. And some of them became part of Cool and the Gang, Uh, Javon Thompson was a very talented musician. He played baritone sax, drums. Now he plays classical guitar. Uh, he ended up playing with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. And, uh, there was some, there was some, you know, Morristown was a very interesting town. It's a very diverse town. You had a mixture of, it was kind of the bedroom community for a lot of CEOs that had, you know, businesses in, in Manhattan. And then you had an established Italian community, African-American community, uh, a lot of Jewish people there, different mixture of people. So my high school was, you know, pretty interesting. And then, uh, shock to my system, my dad uh, got transferred an engineering job to South Carolina. So I had gone from having this real happening little scene up in New Jersey. For my senior year in high school, uh, we moved to Aiken, South Carolina, which was a complete culture shock. A bit. Yeah, it's not like Atlanta, it was uh, it was really southern. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel being there? Oh well, it it, it actually, it, it again, you know, you you. You you can you can make something beautiful out of something terrible. You know, I I was completely uh, you know sort of in shock. You know, over the the change in in uh, in the culture. You know, between New York, New Jersey area, and this this little town near Augusta, Georgia, and uh, so and I you know wasn't going out and socializing and doing much music until I discovered there was a great old guy that taught classical guitar. His name was Richard Young and he's a really interesting person in the history of the guitar because I believe he's the first person on earth to perform publicly on an electric guitar. Um, When he was in in New York, he used to play at the Roosevelt Hotel with John Mohegan, It was a Native American jazz pianist who later taught at Juilliard. And he said, with all the glasses clinking and all the noise in the bar, he couldn't get hurt on his archtop jazz guitar. So you know, he he went and grabbed the uh, the arm of uh, one of these early turntables and you know taped it onto the front of his guitar and ran it, ran it through the sound system that was attached to this you know very early uh, record player and said that's great I can hear you know hear what's going on hmm. and then of course later on you know these engineers like Leo Fender and Les Paul and uh, Rickenbacker you know created other versions of electrified guitars but he was uh, definitely the first jazz guitar player to play electric guitar now, when I encountered him, he's already 92 years old, and he had gone, you know, from studying uh, classical guitar, he'd studied with Juan Mercadal, who's a great Cuban guitar player, and he'd studied in Spain with Andres Segovia. So it was a wonderful privilege to study classical guitar with somebody, you know, who had studied with Maestro Le Segovia. Segovia is kind of, in the classical guitar world, he was the, the really the founder... Of modern classical guitar, you know he he lived in Spain. You know the, the turn of the century, the beginning of the 20th century, really brought the modern guitar into being a, a concert instrument, and, and you know he took uh, a lot of the the repertoire of Bach and other composers and uh, transformed it into a whole literature. So it was a great privilege to him uh, to study with uh, Richard Young. Of course, he's passed away subsequently. But through studying with Richard Young, I got to meet some other interesting people. A fellow student of Mister Young's was a guitar player who was my age, named Steve Morris. Yeah. And Steve Morris uh, had a little cover band at the time that used to play, you know, other people's songs called the Dixie Grit and uh, so I, I at different times played either keyboards or bass with Dixie Grit with a uh, great drummer Gilbert Freyer and a bass player who also played sitar which I had never seen a sitar really played an electric sitar it was Andy West and uh, Andy and Steve you know were very very talented musicians and Steve was a fantastic guitar player classical and uh, rock guitar player. His taste in music at that time I really didn't care for. Though. He loved uh, Grand Funk Railroad and some of these, you know, rock bands I didn't think were that good. And, and uh, I remember almost forcing him to go see the Mahavishnu Orchestra one time, and that really turned his head around. Hmm. And then he and Andy went down to study music at the University of Miami and they put together what became the Dixie Dregs. Yeah. The Dixie Dregs were, you know, really, uh, an amazing fusion, you know, jazz rock band. And later on, the violinist from that band, the Dixie Dregs, Alan Sloan, he and I pursued, uh, another musical interest of mine later on. I got very interested in playing music from the Middle East, from, you know, classical Egyptian and, uh, Syrian and Lebanese music, and I had the, and studied the oud, so we combined the oud and the electric violin. So, you know, these musical threads kind of go back to uh, my time, my year in Aiken, South Carolina. Hmm. So, you know, some nice things came out of that. Um, There was an emerging uh, southern rock scene at the time. And I got to meet the, some of the guys in the Marshall Tucker Band, which was a, they came from fairly nearby uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and uh, got to meet the Almond Brothers and hung out a little bit with those guys. And over the years, I got to be very good friends with one of the drummers, J-Mo, And later on, Jamo and I. Uh, there was a period of time when he, there was no group called in on the they were disbanded, and JMO and I had a jazz trio and also did some recordings. But uh, So you know, sometimes you're thrust into a completely alien situation and you have to make the best out of it.
0: <laughs> well, on the note of style, you've mentioned a few already from these different world music types, to classical music, jazz. Right. What would you say is the genre that is the closest to the heart of James
1: Schneider? Oh, geez. Uh, That's a difficult question. Um, I mean, I've been exposed, I've had the privilege of being exposed to some incredible music, you know, and when you get to a certain point, with whatever your field of endeavor is, the best of those defy genre, you know. Um, hmm. And I'll give you some examples. Um, when I was in college, after you know spending this year in in uh, Aiken, South Carolina, I, I was very lucky to go to a school called Antioch College, which is a little Li- extremely liberal art <laughs> school in, in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I encountered probably the most uh, far out free jazz musician uh, ever on the piano was a guy named Cecil Taylor. And because I had some facility playing up electric and upright bass, I got. Yeah, put into an ensemble with Cecil Taylor. They had a, both a, a smaller group called the Cecil Taylor Unit with Jimmy Lyons and Andrew Cyril. And then also the Cecil Taylor Big Band, which was you know, basically students from Antioch, and it was directed by Cecil Taylor. And I don't know if you've, you're you familiar with his musicianship, but he he really pioneered a completely unique you know, beyond genre form of music, which combined free, lots of free improvisation, lots of European classical piano music with hints of bebop, and, you know. And, you know, that was dazzling, you know, to realize these are some of the possibilities of what you can do. Um, but what really, you know, brought me back to the piano, which, you know... To me, is the king of instruments. Was uh, one night, uh, I convinced a couple friends of mine to go see McCoy Tyner, and McCoy Tyner was playing at a club in Dayton, Ohio near Yellow Springs called Jillies. And he, I'll never forget, he had this amazing group with Alphonse Muzon on drums, Azar Lawrence. Saxophone, Calvin Hill on bass, and uh, they had just come out with a record called "Walk Spirit, Talk Spirit." And of course, McCoy Tyner was mostly famous at that point for being part of the John Coltrane quartet, you know, the classic uh, quartet with Elvin Jones and Jimmy Garrison. And he was just—he was just starting to emerge in the '70s, you know, under his own name, put out his own uh, uh, recordings and that blew me away that was completely astounding i mean the the piano is nothing like the piano i mean it's an orchestra and and the way mccoy played at that time was you know the height of his pianistic powers he's now 80 years old he's still around just turned 80 years old but he was so powerful it's like he was dropping hydrogen bombs on the bass and you know, playing unbelievable runs with his right hand and he was incorporating (laughs) fourths. And just different techniques which, you know, so here, you know, I had heard Cecil Taylor's take on things you know, where he would use, you know, tone clusters. and, And very atonal things. To something that's extremely tonal and, and based on you know ancient uh, pentatonic scales and you know and uh, very polyrhythmic you know I mean with his piano playing you could hear four or five different drum parts you know it's like an African uh, you know conga chorus you know but all on the piano and that just completely flipped me out I went back. To to the campus of Antioch after the show, and I ignored these two girls that I had gone with, you know. And I locked myself in the practice room at the music school, found a grand piano, and I basically played it until the sun came up. And I hadn't played piano at that point since I was 12, you know. And so there was a gap. Between being 12 and maybe 18, 19 years old, where I, you know, was just playing guitar and playing bass, upright and electric bass, and I really wasn't into the piano. But from that point, I said, "Man, I got to make up for lost time and get back into this instrument, you know, and uh, and play the piano." And so I, you know, I grabbed bits of knowledge from different sources, but basically I was self-taught, you Finding music and recordings, and, and you know, hanging out and doing jam sessions, and, and you know, studying little bits, you know, from different people. But uh, um, and that was 1972, you know, 70, 73. um and. Simultaneous to that, you know, I I mean I was so into McCoy Tyner, I followed him around the country, you know. I would hitchhike to gigs to go see McCoy Tyner's group, you know, and I'd talk to him, we we got to be friends, and I'd ask him, Well, what do you listen to? Where is this music coming from? Because I'd never if you study the history of jazz, you know, and you listen to all these piano players, how did he get to be, you know, so amazing? And and you know, he would give me little Tidbits of his background: His mother was a hairdresser in Philadelphia, and their next door neighbor uh, uh, were the Powells, and they had two two uh, brothers, Richard and, and Bud Powell, and you know they were both phenomenal jazz pianists. And he'd hear them playing, you know, practicing a little bit. And then when he finally got a hold of the piano, he studied classical music and he studied, uh, you know. At a, the Granoff uh, Institute in, in Philadelphia. But he said he listens to lots of world music. Mm. Lots of world music and from different sources. And that you know inspired him to come up with a lot of the compositions. So um, unfortunately, Antioch College went through a very tumultuous period. Uh, this was the time of the Vietnam War. And student demonstrations, you remember Kent State and all that kind of uh, business. And Antioch uh, was suffering financially, they couldn't stay open. And uh, so they closed, in, in. not all at one time, but first they told the financial aid students I'm sorry for students, we, we don't have the money for your scholarships so you'll have to go. And then they told the tenured teachers, I'm sorry, we don't have enough money to pay you guys, you're going to have to go. And, of course, the tenured teachers and the financial aid students, a lot of them were black and Latin, uh, Latino students, said, screw that. And they got these uh, big chains and locks and they padlocked the entire campus of Antioch College. And it was a strike. And it was, you know, people were Having big uh, rallies and meetings and so on, and it got pretty tough. There was a guy who had a, who was an administrator. Chuck Smart had a, his office underneath my dorm room, and they firebombed it. You know, with Molotov cocktails. <laughs> you know, it's going up in smoke, and of course, I grab all my instruments out of the room and we're sitting on the front lawn playing like Nero while you know Antioch is burning down. But all of that culminated, and they had a um, the, the Ohio National Guard who had, you know, recently, you know, had their their last big appearance at Kent State, shooting those uh, four students. Shows up in their riot helmets and their billy clubs, and, and uh, they broke open all those chains that padlocked the entire campus, and they opened up the campus. But at that point, there was no point in continuing because they had no money, so Antioch College closed, they went out of business at the end of 1974. So here I'd been going to school there for two years, you know, it was a work study program where you you know, go to school and they use these, these uh, work jobs you know, in your field, and I go, now what do I do? And one of my work study jobs had been in Portland, Oregon, I was interested in architecture and music. And so I ended up uh, working for a great uh, landscape architect in Portland, Oregon, named Philip Thompson. And I said, maybe I should look into this University of Oregon, which is in Eugene, Oregon. And lo and behold, they were one of the few places that would accept my college transcript that had no grades on it. Hmm. No grades! You know, there's, there was just uh, written evaluations. And there was a little segment of the University of Oregon that was called the Honors College. And they allowed me to put together a committee and combine music and architecture. And they had a very good architecture school, the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture, and they had a very respected music school. So um, that led to a whole series of adventures in Oregon. I lived in in, uh, Eugene, Oregon for the next uh, three years after the Antioch experience, and there were some very interesting musicians that had decided to live there. Uh, foremost was a saxophone player named Sonny King, who's an alto saxophone player that we uh, played together some. There were uh, members of the art ensemble of Chicago that decided to to live and hang out there. Marty Ehrlich, who's another great saxophone player. Um, Ralph Towner, Glenn Moore from the group uh, Paul Winter Consort in Oregon. They're from, they had lived in Eugene, Oregon. And so, um, if you want to see a funny, a funny thing, if you ever see the the movie uh, Animal House, yeah, the band Otis Day in the Nights is actually comprised of some of the jazz musicians I used to play with in Eugene, Oregon, because, you know, they, they rounded up the very few black Musicians they could find because it's a pretty white place uh, to put together this group for the movie Otis Day in the Nights. And so that's actually Robert Cray, the blues guitarist, playing bass, and Sonny King, the jazz saxophone player, playing tenor in the, in the Otis Day in the Nights. So, but Oregon was a very interesting place. There were kind of a lot of remnants of the San Francisco Bay Area hippies. They had kind of hippie culture had moved up there. Ken Kesey lived up there, and he had a uh, uh, a large part in organizing big events. They'd have a a big event every year called the Poetic Hoo Ha. They combined poets like Allen Ginsberg would come up there, and they would pair him with Rosson, Roland Kirk, uh, and you know different groups. Now, about that same time, while I'm living in Eugene, Oregon, uh, I was very fascinated in classical Indian music, and I had gone and taken some courses at a school in the Bay Area called the Ali Akbar College of Music, and it was run by Ali Akbar Khan. you know, during the summer break at the University of Oregon, me and a couple of students from the University of Oregon went down there and enrolled in the Hollyhock Park College, and that was a revelation. Hollyhock Park Khan, uh, while he was alive, he was kind of, I guess, more or less like the Beethoven of uh, just a musician at the highest level, and uh, you know, his students were people like George Harrison and John McLaughlin. And uh, teaching tablas there was an amazing guy, Zakir Hussain, uh, whose father was the, um, the tabla player with Ravi Shankar. And uh, they're all, you know, it was, a, it was just, a sh- again, just an amazing revelation to hear uh, music at that caliber and start to get into it, the classical music of northern India. Now one of the people that was studying dance there said, Schneider, you seem to be picking this stuff up pretty good, you know. She was a belly dancer also. She studied classical Indian dance and belly dancing. She said, If I get you an ood, would you learn how to play it? And I said, Well, what's that mean? <laughs> well, you would have to play for me and these other dancers, you know beautiful ladies with finger symbols and so I said, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And Ellen Garrett, thank God, uh, she did this. She unfortunately passed away a few years ago from from cancer, but um, she spent some time in the Middle East and she brought back this amazing instrument. This from Damascus, Syria. This is my oud that I still have to this day. You want to see it? I actually would love to see it. This is the oud that Lou, my friend Lou, brought back from Damascus. And so, you know, she did what she said she was going to do, so I had to honor her request. I don't know if you can see it, but it's all, you know, beautifully inlaid. So I've owned this oud for 40, almost 50 years. 40, 40, more than 45 years. Very interesting. And uh, so, you know, and it's, uh, the the top is uh, spruce wood, um, walnut, sides all inlaid. Anyway, so what are you going to do if you're going to study the oud? Um, and because I was going, already in the Bay Area studying uh, sitar and Indian music mm-hmm. uh, with Ali Akbar Khan, I did some inquiries and found out there's a guy who's teaching an oud workshop uh, at the uh, San Francisco State University. In fact, the guy who told me about it was also a student at the Ali Akbar College, and he was the drummer for the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart. Oh, yeah. And Mickey was uh, studying tablas with Zachary Zane, and in fact, they put together the student band, which was called the Tal Vadyum Rhythm Band, uh, changed their name to Digga, and put out a record that Jerry Garcia played some guitar on. But um, Hamza Eldin, who's an Egyptian Nubian oud master, uh, was teaching at San Francisco State. And uh, a couple of guys in the Grateful Dead and myself and a few other students got to study with him. And he's an amazing musician. He's from the part of Egypt that was um, basically put underwater when they built the Aswan Dam. Hmm. And his people are really the Nubians, which are the people that, uh, if you look at ancient Egyptian history, the first six dynasties of the Egyptian pharaohs were from what's called Upper Egypt, and uh, there's the Blue Nile and the White Nile uh, sections, and they were very dark-skinned people, Nub- the Nubians, and they were they they were the first unifiers of Upper and Lower. Uh, Egypt, and uh, and that's where his family uh, was from. That group of people, and um, Hamza El Din, uh, you know, went when his family, when his whole village and a lot of the antiquities of Egypt were covered with water when they built this dam, moved to Cairo. His dad, you know, didn't want him to be a musician, but uh, he, you know, they wanted him to be an electrical engineer or something. Anyway, he ended up getting serious about the oud. And he studied from uh, what would be like the Andre Segovia of the oud, an uh, uh, Egyptian composer and oud, famous oud player named Mohammed Abdel Wahab. And Mohammed Abdel Wahab uh, was the composer and oud accompanist for Um Kulthum, She was the most famous yeah. Egyptian you know, singer. all time. So my instruction on the oud started out, well, we're going to learn the compositions of Muhammad al-Wahab. So Leila Hove and some of the the pieces that were written for Um Qautum was my first exposure to the oud. And because um, there weren't many oud players in Eugene, Oregon, I. You know, was able to put together groups and play for groups of belly dancers, and that was a whole nother thing. You know, playing Middle Eastern uh, classical music and Middle Eastern pop. You know, uh, folk and folk music for dancers, and I did that and did that in some of the strangest venues you'd ever think of. <laughs> so, um, and at the same time, I was, you know pretty serious about the sitar, um, and still following this pursuit of the piano. So when you say, can you pigeonhole me into one, you know, bag or another, no, I'm just as interested in jazz as I am in music uh, from India and from the Middle East. and uh, You know, some of the people that really study it to put it together, he, Hamza was a musicologist and he was married to a Japanese lady who was a koto player and he had ended up the end of his life. He taught at the University of Tokyo and uh, the University of Washington as an ethnomusicologist and he had really studied the connection along what we call the silk route uh, of the trading routes that came, you know, all the way from Turkey. Uh, the Bosphorus, all the way through Asia, all the way through China, all the way to Japan, and made musical connections, you know, between these places. And it's very fascinating because, you know, the more and more you study history, you realize it's not all about these wars. And, uh, you know, the real big picture is, you know, the movement of culture through, and and, you know, the adapting of culture goes along with, development of these civilizations. And, um, so Hamzel was my teacher, um, as well as Ali Akbar Khan, and uh, I'll always be thankful for having been exposed to both of them. Uh, my last encounter with Hamz al was in 2001, and I had already just moved to Atlanta. Uh, well, I'd been in Atlanta for a little while, and I brought him here to do a concert at Emory University and it was right after 9-11 happened. So a lot of you know raw nerves with the, the uh, World Trade Center and, uh, and the non- incidents around 9-11 and he gave a concert of Egyptian classical music and his own Nubian music and it was one of the most amazing uh, healing concerts ever that I ever he was an amazing person. He was also sort of a great philosopher in the Sufi tradition of uh, mystical uh, Islam, which has always been fascinating to me as well. Um, And, uh, you know, throughout my time involved with learning how to play these instruments and playing music in different ensembles, I've loved being a presenter, being a you know, putting on concerts and bringing different people to perform and tour around and I've done quite a bit of that so
0: probably also a difficult
1: question but
0: yeah. of all of the musical things that you've done of all of the events would it be possible to pick one that was the most exciting or the most fascinating oh well or the most rewarding huh just one the one that's just, it's bright.
1: Well. Probably a hard question. Gosh, there's been so many really uh, amazing times. Um, well, I'll give you two examples. One when I was a promoter, producer of music, and the other as a performer. Okay. Um, I had known this young Organ player, Joey DiFrancesco, since he was a kid, since he was like, you know, literally just a kid, before he played with Miles Davis and, you know, got to be famous. And I knew his dad and his mom. And I really loved this kid. You know, I thought he was fantastic. The first time I saw him come to Atlanta, uh, the guitar player in my group, which was a guy named Russell Malone. Uh, who's now doing extremely well in the jazz world in New York. Russell and I went to go see Joey play at the Ritz Carlton downtown downtown in Buckhead, Atlanta, and the audience consisted of me and Russell and the bartender, and that was it. And Joey DiFrancesco had his trio there, and they were swinging so hard, just playing their asses off. And I'm going, this is unbelievable. This is a shame on Atlanta, you know, that this amazing group shows up and swings their ass off and, you know, guitar, Hammond B3, and drums. And it's, you know, me and Russell to see it. So (laughs) I said, Joey, I swear to God, if you ever come back to Atlanta, I, I will make sure you're playing to a huge, enthusiastic audience. And, and it'll be completely different than this. He says, no problem, man. I'm digging just playing here here for you guys. And so he calls me a few years later from Tokyo, Japan. He says, check this out, Schneider. And I'm hearing some just amazing music. And I say, well, who is that? Who the F is that? I don't know if you can use that F word on this broadcast. The way you did it was fine. Huh? The way you did it was fine. Okay, <laughs> Well, you can edit that out, but uh, so I said, "Who the f is that?" And he goes, "That's my new group." You know, well, who's in this band? And he said, "It's John McLaughlin on guitar, and Dennis Chambers on drums." I said, well, "That is amazing." I said, "If you let me, I will book every venue that I can find in North America to for this group." And he said, "Well, the name of the group is the Free Spirits." You know, John McLaughlin. Joey DiFrancesco and Death Chamber of Free Spirits. And so I did book the southeastern east, south leg of the tour. It ended up being 28 dates in the U.S. And the timing was exquisite because John McLaughlin had not been heard in North America playing an electric guitar since 1972 when the, the Mahavishnu Orchestra had broken up. You know, he... Just no one had seen him. He'd been playing acoustic guitar and, and there, you know, if you are a guitar know, he's like one of these, you know, guitar gods, you know, you're like your Hendrix or you clapped Clapton or McLaughlin, you'd put those, you know, for into guitar playing. And so uh, we put a tour together, you know, Dennis Chambers had his custom drums sent to the little piano store I was managing. We got a bus together and a van, and we got to use my organ, my Hammond B3, and some Leslie's, And uh, got a couple sound engineers from Germany to join us. And it was one great show after another. But one particular show stands out. There was a, a Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina. We, we pull up to the uh, venue. There's a club called the Be Here Now. I don't know if you... You remember that place, but I guess it set you know seated about a thousand, twelve hundred people, and they had screwed up. They on the marquee instead of saying John McLaughlin Free Spirits, they put the John McLaughlin Trio. That must be him. uh... (laughs) Anyway, the trio was not the name of the band. He said Schneider, what's up with that? You screwed up. You messed up. What do you mean, the John McLaughlin trio? And I said, "Chill out, John." I said, "We just sold out two shows, you know. We're going to do a, a, you know, a seven o'clock and a nine o'clock show here. So don't, you know, get all fretful about the sign." And he said, "Well, that's not right. That's just absolutely not correct, you know." I'm, and I said, "Well, listen, man, you can't call your band the Free Spirits here." He said, "Why not?" He said, "Because this is a dry county." Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's not funny, Schneider. I go, well, whatever. I said, by the way, since you're such a big fan of that guy, John Coltrane was born over there, which was, you know, we were passing uh, by the area exactly where John Coltrane was born. He said, well, thanks for letting me know. You know, and I'm going, this guy, you know, he's got this English, very dry humor. Gets up on stage that night. He says, well, we're the Free Spirits, but I understand we can't use that name because of the dry county, you know. Using all my humor, you know, and I understand that this is the place where John Coltrane was born. And he proceeds to play the most unbelievable version of Giant Steps, Moments' Notice, and A Love Supreme, you know, just a medley of John Coltrane. And I just go, wow, you know, I just was awe, awesome, you know, playing at that level. That was one of those moments of live music where that transcend, you know, what you, whatever, whatever you've been exposed to up till then. So afterwards, we're sitting at a French restaurant talking. And I said, so why did you give me such a hard time about this, uh, this, uh, sign, you know, free spirits? He said, Well, let me tell you about my first day in America. And I said, Well, what happened? He said, Well, Miles Davis had had me flown over, and there's a recording session, had three keyboard players. You had Keith Jarrett, Corea, and Joe Zawinul, And we recorded for about eight hours. It was called Bitches Brew. I don't know if you remember the record, Bitches Brew, Miles Davis. And then Portions of that recording also became three other records. On the Corner was, was part of it, uh, another record. And <laughs> he said he was in heaven. You know, if you're a jazz musician and you get called in by Miles Davis to play on a, on a recording session, you know, you're in heaven. And he said after, after they finished recording, uh, the drummer Tony Williams picked up uh, McLaughlin and took them to their, they had a gig that night, at this place uh, way up in Harlem, and the name of the band was the Tony Williams Lifetime. It was Larry Young on Hammond, Oregon, uh, Tony Williams, and John McLaughlin. They get to the gig, and instead of saying, Tony Williams Lifetime, with Larry Young and John McLaughlin, it said, Tom Williams Life Story. <laughs> so, you know it's going to be messed up, and it was messed up. The the PA wasn't working right. The Leslie speakers weren't working right. Through all these, you know, junkies and pushers and pimps and everybody in the place, and you know, it was just a completely messed up thing. They didn't get paid, and uh, to make matters extremely worse, um, at the end of the gig, you know, Tony offers to drive John back downtown to his hotel, and says, "No, no I'll get a cab." Not realizing, if you're on 128th Street in Lexington, you're not going to a cab at three o'clock in the morning. Mm. It's not gonna happen. So he goes back in to get on the telephone, and his little guitar amp that he's had since he was a teenager in England is ripped off from the front of the club. And he comes back out there with his guitar and has to walk like 60 blocks, you know, back all the way down to Midtown to the Empire Hotel. You know, <laughs> he says, In one day, I went from heaven to Recording with Miles Davis to hell with this Tom Williams life story. And he never forgets any time they screw up one letter of his name or anything on a marquee that things are going to go terrible. And he has this allergy. But it was absolutely one of the best concerts I've ever seen. It was just, you know, at, a, at an extremely high level. Um, I think as far as personal playing experiences, um... There are, there are a couple of outstanding gigs. One gig I had, um, uh, well, two two gigs I'd say were super outstanding. There was a group I had in, in Eugene, Oregon called Satari, which in in uh, Buddhism is means uh, it's been a light enlightenment or a kick in the eye, literally. And uh, we had instrumentation where I played the ode, played sitar, guitar. A uh, couple percussionists, electric oboe, and uh, we played in front of the Poetikuha. Akua. Allen Ginsberg was the uh, spoke right before us, and he he was incredible. He chanted with his harmonium and recited reso- uh, some of his poems, like Howl. Uh, and uh, and then right after us was Ross and Roland Kirk. This was. Um, at the end of Rasan's career, and he had already suffered a stroke, and he had all his horns uh, reworked, re-engineered, so he could play with one hand. And at the end of his show, he held a note, I think, for 45 minutes. You know, and Of course, when he changes the notes, people just went berserk. <laughs> but I remember the, my performance with Satori was a very outstanding performance. And it was televised, someone had recorded it, saved it for posterity. Um, And then another equally very nice uh, performance, I had a trio with uh, J-Mo from the Allman Brothers and a bass player named Ben Geddes. And uh, uh, because my initials are J-A-S, We called it J Mo Jazz Band, which to this day he still calls his own band the J Mo's Jazz Band. He's added a couple other S's and Z's to the name. But originally we were the J Mo Jazz Band. And we played at the Atlanta Jazz Festival. And this was our last gig because the Holman Brothers had just decided to get back together again. And they were going to go, you know, put up their first rehearsals and a tour together the next week. So we played at the Atlanta Jazz Festival, and the acts that came after us was uh, uh, Jane Ira Bloom with uh, Ed Blackwell, who was j drum teacher, so it was very special for him, John McLaughlin uh, with the uh, amazing bass player and amazing percussionist, Trilok Gertu, and then the Tony Williams Quintet. Uh and Tony Williams quintet at that time was as good as it gets. I mean, it was just you know and if you're thinking it doesn't get any more ridiculous than that, we've just opened up this show for John McLaughlin and Tony Williams. The next act was Sun Ra. And Sun Ra had decided that day he's just gonna do the music of Walt Disney. So he's whistle while he work and you know, uh and and just you know familiar with sunrise, oh, yeah. pretty outrageous performance. And then the final act of the evening was Miles Davis, and Miles Davis at that time, you know, had a phenomenal band, you know, with, with uh, phenomenal uh, Mike Stern on guitar and, uh, Al Foster on drums, you know, just an, an amazingness. So you know, being part of that day of music in Grant Park in Atlanta uh, was an outstanding thing. And I think we, as my trio gave, a very nice performance. So, you know, as a musical experience, that's one one day that kind of stands out to me as being very, very nice. And it was the end of that musical uh, partnership I had with uh, with Well, he, at that time, he'd fallen in love with the, beautiful lady who was a choreographer up in Connecticut and moved up there and we both ended up becoming dads at the same time hmm. so his daughter Kajai and my daughter Isabella are exactly the same age well from your perspective
0: yeah. what is the best thing about being James Snyder? Oh, getting to talk
1: to you, <laughs> <Come on. laughs> you know, I've had a very very happy life you know I mean Uh, like Roland Kirk. I I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet Rasan Roland Kirk. Oh, I wish. But, you know, his big expression that he said all the time was bright moments. And so the group of people that were part of that group called the Vibration Society, in fact, one of them lives right down the street from here, Tony Waters. He was part of that that Rasan's group, the Vibration Society. When you greet each other, you don't say hello, you don't say goodbye, you say bright moments. And bright moments is really, you know, uh, reflects, you know, times in your life when things are, you know, at the peak, you know, and I think, you know, you you undergo bright moments, you know, when you're you're having a great experience. For me personally, the brightest moment that I can remember uh, was probably the birth of my daughter, Isabel. I would say it doesn't get brighter than that, you know. And then next to that, the uh, birth of my twin boys. I have twin boys... Benjamin and Zachariah that are 26, and my daughter Isabel's is 28, and, you know, being their dad and watching them grow up and uh, do their thing, I'd say, is the best, you know, high point of my experience. Something about this day in time, with the way that
0: information spreads, you just never know who's listening. I never knows do one <laughs> or who's watching yeah what would you say to anybody
1: who's tuned in totally open-ended yeah uh just be the best you you can be you know that's it you know uh, on the one hand there's a couple of principles uh that I try to live by you know and uh you can observe the world around you and you can see that there's a lot of suffering in the universe and a lot of suffering here. And you can either be the cause of more suffering or you can cure some suffering that you're observing. You know, you can choose, you know. And so if you consistently choose to you know, keep a clear mind and and uh, and a and clear observation of things around you and try to be a cure for suffering, and one great way to do that is to be involved in music or the arts, then you're really accomplishing something, you know. Um, And everything you think and everything that you say and every single thing that you do affects everything around you. You know, if you're conscious of, of, of the effect of having even what you think uh, around you while not letting that create a false ego. In other words, you're still just a grain of sand in the, in the big scheme of things in a very extremely, infinitely large beach, you know, you're just a grain of sand. But within that realm that you exist in, that time that you're given, And you never know how long that is. I mean, my parents are ninety-two and ninety years old, Uh, so you don't know, you know, how long a time it is. And you know, unfortunately, as everybody does, you experience people whose lives are cut short. You know, that were just an amazing meteor uh, of existence. You know, I've known great musicians who. You know, some of them became big names, some of them did not. Uh, you know, obviously Dwayne Allman, you know, to die so young, you know, he's not even 30 years old. And, and to have the impact on music that he did, you know, is, is just phenomenal. People like Jaco Pastorius is another one. Uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, is another, you know, great, great musician. Who knows, you know, if he had followed the musical trajectory it seemed that he was on, maybe he would have been collaborating with Miles Davis and different jazz musics and music would have, you know, had a whole other input. Mm. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm just thankful for the opportunities that I've had to and to expose to uh, great music, and in some cases being allowed to facilitate and participate in the
0: uh,
1: production and the performance, and then be involved myself in the production and performance of musical situations. Uh, one thing that I don't do uh, so much anymore, but I did do for a period of time, was make soundtracks to compose music to a visual, uh, you know, realm and uh, also be involved in in music as an undercurrent of a plot, you know, telling a story, and uh, as a complement to the visual medium, so.
0: Well, you're seated there at a piano. That's what it is, yeah. I'm wondering if if for everyone you would maybe play something.
1: Sure! There's a tune that, um, that I was looking at earlier, it's called the reincarnation of a lovebird. Are you familiar with that one? Not yet. Not yet. Well, it's a tune um, that is written by uh, Charles Mingus, who's one of my heroes. I mean, they're, they're in 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 the field of musical composition, there are three guys that just uh, utterly amaze me: Thelonious Monk, you know. It's one of them, Duke Ellington. It's another one, uh, and Charles Mingus. And um, I did get a chance to meet Mingus, and he's also an amazing person. Hey, let me play a little Ellington, and then I'll play a little Mingus. All right. If that's okay with you guys, yep. this is in a sentimental mood, Duke Ellington. School in New York, taking pictures of everything, and uh, he even made some home movies that were quite very, very interesting. Hmm. But he was a great piano player. And when I was a kid, I'd sneak into the village of Vanguard, and he'd be holding court hanging out in the kitchen there. He was a huge guy, big, big, like a bear of a person. And they'd have these great arguments in the, in the kitchen of the village Vanguard. One time, I remember. Tony Williams was in there, who's a very short, powerful drummer, arguing with Charles Mingus, who's, you know, easily got 200 pounds on this guy, you know. <laughs> and then Tony Williams comes in and goes, eight shit happened since John Coltrane died, since his Train died. And, and he started arguing with Mingus, and Mingus got really pissed off at him and started chasing him around the table. Big old butcher knife. I was like, oh my god, this is gonna be you know, the death of Tony Williams. But he escaped, made it through the front door. His, his Tony Williams girlfriend was the uh, lady that took your tickets up at the top of the stairs, and uh, her name was Tequila. And uh, and so, anyway, to make a long story short, everybody in the kitchen was given the bums a rush. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the interesting tales of crazy jazz musicians that I remember. So. Anything else you'd like to know?
0: Well, James, thank you very much. Sure. I appreciate you
1: spending time with us. Sure. Hey, anytime. Now you know where I live, so don't be a stranger. You All can right. be strange, but don't be a stranger. All right.
0: More information on the Paul Leslie Hour is available at Paullesley.com. Special thanks to Dave Hoosier for recording this interview. Until next time.
1: (laughs) jeep. bye